You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning machine keeps turning death and hatred to mankind poisoning their brainwashed minds welcome to the anarchist world this week broadcast across australia on the national community radio satellite listen to the anarchist world this week australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. I've got some good news for you. You won't have to listen to me next week. It's International Women's Day, and I've got two extraordinary women who will be, yeah, obviously takes two of them, to run the Anarchist World this week. Uh, Margaret Riley, who was a previous host of the uh, very, very radical sewer show here at 3CR, and Beth Matthews, who's the host of and the originator of Radical Philosophy here on 3CR. And they have told me, and I just can't believe this, they're going to play some music on my program. Extraordinary. Bad people. So if they play any music... You complain. Don't complain to me, complain to them. So it should be a great program next week. I encourage you to listen to uh, Margaret Riley and Beth Matthews. Now, if you wonder what anarchism is all about, an anarchist society is a voluntary, non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power and society where wealth is held in common. Now, a few community, few announcements because uh, obviously I won't be here next week, so there's a few more than normal. Uh, the uh, If you live in Melbourne, the dinner at La Porquetas will be held tonight. That's right, the 1st of March. That's tonight, 6pm to 9pm. That's at, in Carlton North. You're all welcome to come along as long as you pay for your food and drinks. So that's that. Now, the public housing, everybody's business, vigils on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. Uh, There'll be one tomorrow on the 2nd, and the next one will be the 16th. So the 2nd and the 16th, and then every Thursday for the rest of March. On the 15th of March, we are holding a uh, commemoration for the Paris Commune. I will do a presentation on what what role does the Paris Commune play in Australia in 2023 and um, the Australian connection to the Paris Commune. So I'll be holding that uh, presentation at the Footscray Hotel at 54 Hopkins Street and we'll be starting around 6.30pm. The presentation will be videotaped and talking about videotapes, the presentation I did a few weeks ago at the Tanaminua Mulbohina uh, Monument has now gone up on the net 
it's available if you go to the, uh, I think, my Facebook page, Joseph Toscani, but more importantly, if you go to the Tanaminaway and Morbohina Commemoration Committee web uh, Facebook page, Tanaminaway and Morbohina Facebook page, that presentation is there. It's about 58, 57 minutes. Uh, you can watch it in little bits and pieces, and I do encourage you to go to the Tanaminaway and Morbohina Commemoration uh, Facebook page, as we're keen to increase the momentum for the 20th of January to become National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Freedom Fighters Day. So get involved. So there's lots of things happening. And while there are lots of things happening, I had a mystical experience. No, I didn't see God. No. I um, was invited to go out to Beaconsfield, which is about 50 kilometres from the Melbourne CBD. It's one of the outer, outer suburbs. Obviously, they're independent communities at one stage, but because of the huge uh, spread. And they're involved in a tiny little struggle, which is not of much interest to anybody, uh, revolving around the never-ending, gold-plated construction binge, which is happening in Victoria currently and the rest of Australia, where, you know, the... Debt, the state debt has now reached $600 billion. That's for everybody. I think half of that debt is in Victoria. And if you do come to Victoria for a holiday and you listen to this program somewhere else in Australia, you will notice the the construction phase. And it reminds me, not that I was around, of the 1880s when it was marvellous Melbourne became recession Melbourne. But uh, that's a different story we'll talk about another day. So what, what was all this mystical experience? Well, I was asked to have a look at this um, Station Marston's house outside uh, Beaconsfield Station, about 50 metres from Beaconsfield Station, because uh, a small local group there is trying to uh, preserve it uh, because this uh, is going to be demolished. But what really caught my eye was right next door on railway land is a bunya pine. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with bunya pines. They're extraordinary indigenous trees, mainly in southern Queensland and New South Wales, but they grow very well here in Victoria. Now, this bunya pine is on the uh, significant... It's on the register of significant trees in Victoria, so it's something... It belongs to all of us. It's not just a little struggle about Beaconsfield. There are it's much more. And over the ne- in the next two months or so, uh, this bunya pine, which is about thirty metres tall, was planted in eighteen eighty eight, which makes it nearly one hundred and forty years old. Straight as a ramrod, brilliant looking specimen, is going to be cut down. And the house next to it, the historical home next to it, is going to be demolished so they can build an overpass. It's part of this gold-plated, you know, uh, construction blitz around railway stations with the Victorian state government has successfully pursued for a number of years and everybody's been going, wow, wow, wow. Now, I think, personally, this is a travesty. There are very few bunya pines in Victoria and very few of this quality. And for it to be on the significant 
in our trees list in the state of Victoria is important. And what will happen in the next few months unless there's a widespread campaign to save both the historic building, but more importantly, my opinion, the Bunyapai, this will be destroyed forever and ever and ever. This is tantamount to the Victorian state government, which believe it's now can do what it likes because it's won three elections on the trot. This is tantamount to the Victorian state government tearing up every little rule book that's been created to protect flora and fauna, especially native flora. Every little rule book. Now, if you had a significant tree like this on your property, there is no way you could touch it without a ton of bricks, legal bricks falling on you. But as far as the state government is concerned, the legislation which has been put in place around railway stations, they can do whatever they like. And the private sector can build whatever they like. Now, I realise this is a David and Goliath struggle, but these are the type of struggles I enjoy immensely. And I've offered the services of many of the organisations I'm involved with to the people involved in this particular struggle. And I'll keep you informed about whether we form some type of coalition and use the contacts we have to bring a stop to this travesty. I know it's telling me it's just a tree. But look, I recommend in the next week or two, before we make a final decision on what type of support we're going to give, I recommend that if you want to go for a little trip on the train, go to the Beaconsfield Railway Station could be up at Beaconsfield, go to the railway station, get out, and you'll see it there. One of the most magnificent specimens of trees I've seen anywhere in the world. Go and see it, and then think of what's going to be flying over that area, a two-lane road. Think about it, which is not even needed in that part of the world. It's a relatively quiet part of the world. These still a relatively quiet part of the world. And it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary travesty. And this is what's happening across Australia. Across Australia, we see when it's not convenient for governments at the state level and for local councils to obey their own laws, but mainly state governments, they just change legislation in order to rip up the rule book. Now, any time you go past some type of building site and there's some tree on that building site in Victoria, and I'm, I'm only familiar with Victoria, you'll notice that it's got, you know, it's protected. Even little saplings protected by fences saying protected tree. But when it comes to something which is on the register of significant trees in this state of Victoria, that this government is willing to do whatever it takes. Now, unfortunately... The local group that's been involved in this struggle has been going up all these, working up the right channels, you know, and every time they've worked up the right channels, they've been pushed back. And it's got to the stage where the state government 
although it hasn't actually handed out contracts at this stage, uh, is doing drilling, which is always an indication that, that they, they are very keen for the project to go ahead. Now, just in case you don't know what a bunyap pine is, I suggest you have a look. And if you do look on the net, you put Beaconsfield or Upper Beaconsfield, bunyap pine, you can actually see a picture of this particularly spectacular specimen. It's not just about one tree. It's about this continuing struggle between a construction-for-construction's sake philosophy, a consumption-for-consumption's sake philosophy, and a philosophy which talks about living in harmony with our natural environment. And more importantly, in a city of five million people, which Melbourne now is, and in a city which will outstrip Sydney in the next few years in terms of population growth, in a Sydney which has got, you know, a diameter of over 90 kilometres, I think it's important that significant, especially significant trees, are allowed to continue to flourish. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Satellite. My name is Jeff Toscano. I'll keep you informed about that particular struggle and whether we are going to get involved. And if we do, it'll be boots and all. Because working up the right channels leads to despair for the people involved because at every turn they've been pushed back at every turn and unfortunately when you've had three state elections and the uh, opposition has been so crappy you know in Victoria this government believes now that it has a majority and almost a majority in both houses of parliament it can do whatever it likes that's the Victorian state government and it can't because ultimately, in a democratic society, even in a parliamentary democracy, ultimate political authority rests in the hands of the people. And if they think they're going to rip out this tree and destroy that building next to it, you know, they've got something coming. I was quite awestruck. I've been around a long time and it's not, you know, as you can see. Let's move on. Sabotaging the dominant economic paradigm. You like that? What does all that mean? What does that mean, Joe? What are you talking about? Now, we are conditioned to think that we're powerless. And in a private investment for private profit society, where almost everyone seems to be hell-bent on consuming, defecating and dying quietly, it can be very difficult for individuals to actually ha believe they can have an effect on what's happening around them. I mean, this bunya pine, a dreaming, um, you know, um, dispute, you know, highlights that. It's very difficult. But as individuals, we can do things to sabotage the dominant economic paradigm. And the dominant economic paradigm is based on consumption. Not consumption for human need, to satisfy human need, but for consumption for consumption's sake, to maximise profits irrespective of the human, social and environmental costs. 
So every minute of every day, we, whether we're wherever or not, we're involved in financial transactions. And we do have economic power, even as individuals. Those of you who are familiar with the civil rights struggle in the southern states in the 60s, late 50s and 60s, that struggle for rights for Afro-Americans took on a different turn when Afro-Americans began to boycott en masse white stores. And that economic impact turned the tide as far as that struggle was concerned. Obviously the protests were important, but the economic impact is what woke people up. So how can we sabotage the dominant economic paradigm? One is think about what you consume and why you're consuming it. Think about it. Do I really need this? Will this make a difference to my life? Or am I getting further in debt in order to buy shit which is going to be out of fashion in a year or two time? Keep away from brand names. I'm amazed at the number of human billboards I see on the street every day paying good money to actually spruik the bottom line for some corporation. It is just extraordinary the reach through mass advertising through the social media that brand names have. I mean, you can buy a handbag for $10,000 and you can buy a handbag for five bucks and they do the same job. The only difference is one has a brand name, one, one doesn't. And I can assure you in many of those cases when you buy a $10,000 handbag, which I'm sure none of our listeners can afford, are made in the same factory that makes the $5 handbag. And it's just a matter of creating this artificial demand. So if you think about what you consume and make purchases which you only need for your survival and enjoyment, I'm not telling you to, you know, forego all consumer items, you will find that you'll have a direct impact on the economy. And if thousands of people do the same thing, the impact is palpable. It is palpable. It, it is significant because it doesn't take much to swing the economy one way or another. So these are things we need to think about. The little things, the things you can do by yourself, things you can do with the people you live with. These are decisions we can make every day. And if we make enough of us make these decisions, it does have an impact on what's happening. For example, do you really need to buy bottled water when you can carry a plastic bottle or even a can of water with you when you go out, 
which you get from the tap? Do you really need to buy all that sugar-laden shit? Do you need a Ferrari? And the list goes on and on. So it's ultimately up to you because it's not just about resistance, but it's about creating a climate of resistance. The other way to sabotage the dominant economic paradigm, which is a bit more difficult, is to form collectives and cooperatives. By forming collectives and cooperatives, we create competition within a mixed economy. The problem in Australia today, as I've said over and over again, is the fact that in Australia today, there is no competition because almost every aspect of human endeavour is now based in the private sector, including, as I say over and over again, public housing. That's right. Public housing has now been privatised. The NDIS, the cost blowouts are due to private organisation milking the system to augment their bottom line. And that means there's not enough resources left in the NDIS in to actually provide basic services for people with significant disabilities. And in my line of work, I face this issue day in and day out. You look at the aged care sector, the privatisation of the aged care sector, the same problem. The privatisation of essential services like gas, electricity, roads, through the creation of toll roads, the same problem. So we need to be a little bit smarter than we are today. We don't need to be swayed by fancy advertising. Do you really need pay television? Do you really need pay television? So it's a basis of thinking of something. Do I need this? Am I supporting the economic system? Can I form a collective? Can I, even if it's a cooperative in terms of getting food together to, to, to distribute among the members of, of, of the cooperative? Do I need to buy this? And you can have a, and again, it's about numbers, obviously. You can have a significant impact. All right, so we'll leave you with that little hop and leave, as they say, uh, regarding sabotaging the dominant economic paradigm. At the end of the day, the system works. The system continues to grow. The private investment for private mantra profit becomes to be incorporated in our DNA as a society because we, as a people believe that this is the way forward for us individually and as a community. Let's move on. Now, I was very interested to see that the Australian Federal Police have gone back to basics, like they used to do in the old days, you know. They'd hang around meetings and take down number plates and you name it. Well, it was ASIO, but now it's the Australian Federal Police. That they're going to interact with 35 ethnic, you like the word, communities in Australia because they're concerned about foreign interference 
in these organisations. Now, that's very nice. It's very nice. But unfortunately, it's selective. Very selective. And these days, we don't use the word, well, you know, we don't use the word communist or anarchist or fascist or dictatorship. We use the word authoritarian regimes. They're going to concentrate on authoritarian regimes' impact on ethnic communities from those countries who now live in Australia because they're concerned about the impact that this may have. Well, now... I've been involved with the West Papuan Independence Movement for almost a decade now, and I, as the convener of the West Papuan Office, I'm well aware of the harassment of the few hundred West Papuans that live in this country who have able to obtain asylum in this country are subjected to on a day-to-day -day basis by the Indonesian state. Now, complaints that have been made in the past have been ignored by both the government of the day, the federal police and ASIO. Totally ignored because Indonesia is our ally. And irrespective of what's happening in West Papua, where there is one Indonesian troop stationed in West Papua for every adult West Papuan male, that's 220,000, Irrespective of the disappearances, the murders, the intimidation, the roadblocks, the plundering of West Papua, basically to uh, fill the pockets of the, West pa of the Indonesian military, we do nothing about it, although it's an authoritarian regime. Now, will the Australian Federal Police be keeping an eye on Saudi Arabia, our wonderful ally, home of the liquefier. Will they be keeping an eye on Saudi Arabia and the interference that they've been involved in, including the possible murder of Saudi Arabian refugees who have come to this country? Will they be keeping an eye on the authoritarian regime of Saudi Arabia? And there's nothing more authoritarian than a hereditary feudal monarchy. Hmm? I doubt it. But I can assure you they'll be keeping an eye on the Chinese and Russian immigrants that have come to this country and many are refugees from those authoritarian regimes not to protect those individuals, but ultimately to try to decrease any influence they may have among immigrant communities. So although it all sounds very, very nice and very, very reasonable when you first hear about it, I think we should look at this, at this for what it is. It's part of that Cold War mentality which has is being created on a daily basis in this country 
where the government of China and the government of Russia, the government of Iran, the government of North Korea, the government of Belarus, whatever you think about these authoritarian regimes, are a potential or real threat to us. So what we need to do is we need to dehumanise their populations. We need to create this mentality which will allow us to create the fervour among us to, you know, support future conflicts. And future conflicts are on the horizon. And as I said before, if you think that Australia is safe, that Australians are safe because of our geographical isolation, think again. The fact there are a number of American bases on our, on, in Australia, the fact that the Australian armed forces and the American armed forces are now interlinked through armed purchases, the fact that the Australian governments, Australian governments previous and present, are very keen to develop an arms export industry. And if you think I'm joking, I assume you, you won't be going to the air show down at Avalon in Melbourne. I won't be, but maybe a few protesters will. The fact is, the big talking point is there's an Australian-made drone now that's there. Isn't that wonderful? So, do we really want to go back to that Cold War mentality? Do we really want to go back to that? Do we want to be manipulated as a people to think that our very existence is dependent on us waving the flag every time we take a step forward in militarising this country and every time we take a step forward in supporting a Cold War and consequences that come from that type of confrontation. Well, as I said before last week, are you willing to sacrifice your children if you are? Congratulations. If you're not, think again about the direction that we are slowly taking on a day-to-day -day basis in this country. It is to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Scott, I'm hosting today's program. Now, look, I'm a great fan of the uh, RoboDebt uh, Royal Commission, not that I expect much to come out of it, but I am a great fan because the shit's hitting the fan, as they say. Sorry for the tautology. Not very professional. And it's fascinating because it gives an insight into government. Now, I'll give you an example. Now, I wrote to the aged care minister about something which affected somebody I know quite severely. No response. Six months later, I sent the same correspondence to the um, Prime Minister's office. No response, apart from a computer-generated response saying, we've received the stuff, please tick if you want a response. I've sent it to another minister, still no response. And this is about a very elderly woman who needs an aged care package reviewed, you know, because she's basically housebound. Somebody who's done the hard yards, worked all her life, 
finds herself in a difficult situation and now finds it almost impossible to access the necessary care, although we're told on a daily basis that this, that this is available, okay? This is just a minuscule thing. It's like the Bunya Pine campaign I was talking about. It's just a little minuscule thing. But it gives an insight. The robo-debt inquiry gives an insight into how governments work. Now, in the past, ministers took notice of advice from a public service which is designed to provide a service to the public. So you had a public service, you had a minister, minister took advice and then made a decision one way or another. I mean, that's been the traditional Westminster system. Where the public service is there to give advice regarding the implementation of legislation. Simple. But what the robo-debt inquiry has shown a significant, a significant destruction of this pathway. Because what happens today, and it's not just for ministers, but also, you know, people on the back bench, they select their ministerial staff. And the main reason you select a ministerial staff member is because of their political allegiance. And most people who, who are staff members in a ministerial office or even a backbencher's office are there to promote their personal political career. It's a stepping stone. It's a stepping stone. The Premier of Victoria, Mr Andrews, is a professional politician. He got his BA from somewhere, turned up at a minister's office and then went up the pile, you know, up, up the ladder to become Premier. No life experience. And you'll find that many, if not most of the people that work, that are, that, that are attached to a minister's office are not attached there to provide advice, they are basically attached there to protect the minister. And what we see, those of you who remember, you know, Get Smart and good old Maxwell Smart, who's now unfortunately the actor who played him has died recently, great program, will remember the Maxwell Smart cone of silence. And Morrison's prime ministership highlights how important that cone of silence was. Because the ministerial staff are employed directly by the minister. So they can be fired by the minister. So it's in their best interests, if they wish a political career or even to keep their jobs, is to kowtow to the current ideological picadillos of the minister. And the robo-debt inquiry highlights this. 
Because although there are damning public servant reports about the legality and the implementation of robo-debt over a period of time, the minister was not told. Unlike taking direct advice from the public service, even the public service has been politicised because the head of the department is directly appointed by the government of the day and they're usually appointed because they're ideological similarities. So you've got this ministerial cone of silence, which means ministers have no idea or minimal idea about what's happening in their department because the people they've appointed into their office basically act as a Praetorian Guard to protect them from us the people who elect them. So if you're involved in some type of correspondence with government, you will find that it never, never, ever finds its way into the minister's office unless you're able to crack the media and get a little bit of media attention. Because if you look at the way Morrison worked, I mean, he only replied to problems which were raised in the media that day. Albanese is a bit smarter. He just doesn't reply. So, to a significant degree, this highlights why we continue to have the same problems continuing. Because there is no mechanism by, by which people who experience problems can actually take that problem to a minister office or a backbencher's office. And if they go to a backbencher, the backbencher then sends the material to the minister's office and the Praetorian Guard, the minister's staff, which has been appointed by the minister, then just deflects it back to the backbencher and says, we can't help. End of story. And, I mean, I get... Look, I know people who listen to this program, in many cases, have been through the system. They've been spat out, eaten up and spat out, spat out around the place. And it's incredible the number of people that ring and discuss the situation they find themselves in and how many cul-de-sacs they've been through how many committees they've been sent to, how many submissions they've made. At the end of the day, nothing seems to change unless they get a moment's glory in the media, in the media which is interested basically, not in their case, but in sensationalism. So it's just extraordinary. And it, to a significant way... It highlights what happens. There are no public meetings anymore, people, you know. And if they are, they are so highly managed that nothing ever seems to happen. And if there's one thing about the Albanese-led Labor government, it's not the Albanese government, it's the Albanese-led Labor government, 
is the fact that they are masters at camouflaging what is actually occurring and masters of tinkering at the edges. Not because they're frightened of the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, but to a significant degree. Their, their ideology matches the ideology of the investment class and that 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. A few Facebook pages, uh, Tanaminuwe Mulbohina Commemoration Committee, uh, Joseph Toscano, Toscano for the Public, Public Housing Everybody's Business, Defend and Extend Public Housing, YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. You can always join Public Interest Before Corporate Interest on the net. Go to pipsy, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Join up now, right now. You can do it right now while you listen to the program. Haven't got a computer? You can always leave a message on 0439 395 489. Now, this is an extraordinary story. And obviously most things that we talk about are extraordinary because obviously you're extraordinary listeners. The U.S. government and the, and, and the uh, via the uh, U.S. ambassador have just unveiled a plaque to Mr. John Joseph in Bendigo, where they think he was buried in a marked grave. Now remember the word Bendigo, B-E-N-D-I-G-O. Now, Mr. John Joseph, one of the central figures in the Eureka Rebellion, which happened in Ballarat on the 3rd of December 1854, and which went on for years, the ramifications. He was a freed Afro-American slave from New York who found his way to the Ballarat goldfields. He joined the rebels. He was one of the 104 that was in the stockade on the morning of the 3rd of December, Sunday the 3rd of December 1854, when he was overrun by um, British troops and Victorian police. And he was responsible for shooting and wounding Captain Wise, who was the deputy commander of the storming troops. He was captured. He was one of the 13 people tried for high treason. And in February 1855, a few months after the rebellion, he was acquitted by a jury of his peers and uh, chaired around the streets of Melbourne. Extraordinary story, extraordinary story. It happened in Ballarat. B-A-L-L-A-R-A-T. Not Bendigo. Now, the great thing about the Ballarat City Council, and I usually don't kick local councils, but in this case, I'm using my bother boot boys to kick the Ballarat City Council, is they have no respect, none whatsoever, for the Eureka rebels, the men and women involved in that revolt, the significant impact it had on Australian society. They are a total waste of time. Now, last year, the Reclaim the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion Celebrations Committee, which I'm a convener of, 
joined forces with Ballarat Town Hall. Not with Ballarat, sorry. My God. We should have joined forces with Ballarat Town Hall. We joined forces with the uh, Ballarat and Western Region Trades Hall. Ballarat and Western Region's Trades Hall. To promote the Eureka story and the radical elements of that story and the continuing impact it has on Australia in 2023. And for decades, decades, the Ballarat Western Regions Trades Hall has reached out to the Ballarat City Council in an attempt to get them to take this issue seriously, and they haven't. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but I don't lie. Well, I may make mistakes, but I try not to lie, especially, you know, on this program. Since 1854, 1854, although the Ballarat City Council uses the Eureka flag as its symbol, that's right, as its symbol, it has never flown the Eureka flag on the main flagpole over Ballarat City Hall, not even during the 150th anniversary celebrations in 2004. Never. Not once. If you go to Ballarat, you'll see the Australian flag on the main flagpole. You'll see a little Ballarat flag on one side and a little Aboriginal flag on the other side. Not even a Torres Strait Islander flag, but that is a recognised Australian flag. Never. And has resisted any attempts to fly the Eureka flag on the main flagpole for one day a year to pay respect to those men and women involved in the Eureka Rebellion on the 3rd of December. Not once. And here we have the United States government trying to make amends for the fact because John Joseph was an Afro-American, they did not offer him support in 1854 while they supported other rebels who came from the United States who were not tried because of US intervention for their involvement in the Eureka Rebellion, who have tried to make amends by creating a plaque to honour John Joseph. But in Ballarat, if you walk up and down the centre of Ballarat, there are 19, yes, and I've walked up and down, monuments. One is to the eight-hour day and one is to the turncoat. Peter Laylor in his judicial robes as Attorney-General. Not one significant monument to the Eureka rebels. And if you go to the old Ballarat Cemetery and you see the state of the mass grave for the Eureka rebels and the state of other graves of prominent figures in that rebellion, you would cry. You would cry. And that is the problem in this country. We have 
no respect, none whatsoever, for our radical past. We have no respect for those pioneers who were involved in creating this society. We have no respect, as we've seen with the debate regarding our voice to Parliament, to this country's original inhabitants. We continue to function as a society which lurches from day to day to day to day to day, not respecting, not interested in its history, unless that particular part of history fits in with the current ideological agenda. And I've been sickened to see Anzac Day, a day which is set aside to remember the dead, now being slowly manipulated into a position where it becomes a military festival. Not a day of respect for the dead, but a day in which to whip up nationalist fervour so we can all enjoy the spoils of the current attempts to recreate the Cold War in this country. Think about it. Just think about it. That's one of the reasons I decided this year to do the 10-part series on radical moments in Australian history which had an impact, a pivotal impact on Australian society. I've done one. We'll be doing another one on the 15th of March. You can go to the website to find out about it. Uh, it's about the, uh, the influence the uh, Paris Commune had on the Australian radical movement. And I'll be doing a whole series over the next series of 10. They are being videotaped and they'll be available for people to watch who can't come to these events because not only we just don't have any, there is no interest. And this is what happens when you're in a society which is based on, totally based on the concept of maximising profits irrespective of the human, social, environmental costs. A society that lives from day to day. All right, let's move on. Competition, the great capitalist furphy. We are told that competition is what keeps prices down. It's the lifeblood of capitalism, the private investment for private profit mob. And we don't have competition in this country. We have collusion. We even have an organisation called the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is there to stop collusion. But unfortunately, because there are no antitrust laws, and that means laws which uh, force huge companies which dominate a particular field of human endeavour to be broken up and sold. What we have is a few corporations in every sphere of influence in this country, in every sphere of production, in every sphere of consumption, which dominate the marketplace. And all you've got to do is drive around a city and look at the petrol prices and you will see that competition is really a furphy. It doesn't exist. There's no competition in a society which is based on corporations which are too big to fail. There's no competition in a society where corporations dominate the parliamentary agenda 
where Parliament tinkers at the edges. There's no competition in a society which is totally dominated by the private investment for private profit mantra, where there's no collective or corporate sector to the economy, where the public sector has been privatised to an inch of its existence. There's no competition. And if you want real competition, you need a strong public sector, a strong collective and cooperative sector, as well as a strong private sector. Then there's real competition. But obviously, it doesn't exist in Australian society because we're quite happy to be dominated by a few corporations who basically extract our mineral wealth uh, import stuff for us to consume and provide essential services. Ah, it's a sad, sorry state of affairs which we, that's right, we have allowed to occur because we all love the private investment for private profit mantra. And just in case you think we're in marvellous Melbourne to just remember companies, large companies, are starting to go into receivership. Things like tr Scott Transport, 1,500 refrigerated trucks delivering food around the country in receivership. We will see more and more and more of this. Let's not forget, state government debt is now over $600 billion. This construction for construction's sake frenzy is helpful to no one. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. Just remember, next week is International Women's Day. Um, Margaret Riley, ex-host of The Sewer Show here on Community Radio 3CR, and um, Beth Matthews, the current host of and creator of Radical Philosophy here at 3CR, will also be, will be broadcasting the Anarchist World this week. I have been told by them, because obviously they've got total control of the hour, that there may be music on the program. I don't know how I'm going to cope on the 15th. Don't forget, tonight, La Poqueta, 6 to 9 p.m. Tomorrow, Steps of Parliament House, 15th, that's at midday to 1 p.m., followed by lunch at the Paramount Food Court. Obviously, we do socialise. And don't forget the 15th of uh, March for the uh, presentation on the Paris Commune and its influence on Australian society in 2023 and also the Australian connection with the Paris Commune. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. This program is podcast by the wonderful Kelly Whitworth, the producer of the Anarchist World this week. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. See you in a fortnight. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week via the Community Radio Network. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.